It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson's here with 10 great questions and answers. More on buffer bloat, uh, security news, and a whole lot more. Yes, we'll even talk a little bit about coffee and the iPad. Security, but just a little bit. Security Now is next. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new WinApp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 346, recorded Wednesday, March 28, 2012. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 140. Security Now is brought to you by Carbonite Online Backup. Automatic, continuous, unlimited backup for your computer files, only $59 a year. Try it free at Carbonite.com. Don't forget to use the offer code SECURITYNOW to get two bonus months with purchase. It's time for security now. Time to protect yourself, your friends, your loved ones online. Protect your privacy, too. And here he is, the explainer-in-chief, the man who makes it all happen, Mr. Steve. I've got a giant mic, and I'm not afraid to use it. Gibson of GRC.com. <laughs> good good day to you. How are you, Steve? <laughs> Great. Great to see you and talk to you and uh, be connected to you. And uh, uh, we got all kinds of stuff to talk about. We sure do. And it's Q&A some episode. Of it, some is even about... The internet and security and computers. I'm sure we'll get. I'm sure we'll get to that. Well, we have uh, one carbonite ad. We'll do that uh, right after your uh, spin right mention. But uh, let's dig right. And I know we have questions and answers, but let's dig right into the uh, security okay, news now, off the top here. I, I first of all, we should let our listeners know that as a consequence of our buffer bloat episode, where I ran the analyzer last week, love that analyzer. Oh, yeah, that's has been a win for so many people. Uh, I got, got an couple- email from them saying thank you. No kidding. Yeah. Oh, neat. They said uh, we um, got more traffic from you guys than we've ever had before, and it's really helped us with our research, so thank you. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Well, as we know, we learned that my own connection had arguably a little more buffering than I wanted, but more significant for the podcast is because I have a pair of T1s and packets can be routed down either one, they were coming out at the other end with much more out of sequence than is normal for a connection. As we've talked about this often, there's nothing that guarantees packets will arrive in the same sequence they're sent. TCP handles that by putting serial numbers in, in all of the TCP packets and both ends do some buffering of their own. This is not the evil router buffering that you know that, that is subject to bloat. This is after they arrive at the endpoint or or until they are acknowledged having been sent, each endpoint keeps them and that allows them to be reassembled in order. Well, the problem is for something that really needs to be real time, like voice over the internet. You, you, you don't have time to hold things because that would introduce too much round-trip delay. I mean, it would be like you and I were on a satellite connection instead of a real-time connection. So 
the decision is made, if packets come in out of sequence, eh, you know, if, if one appears to be missing, if we get one that comes along, we'll just we'll just send the audio in that packet and not worry about what's been missed. Now there are algorithms for trying to fill in gaps to sort of continue the audio from the one the last one you got and sort of hopefully bridge into the next one. But you know, and and that that's somewhat useful. Anyway, the point is that for this podcast, I have I have shut down one of the two T1s. So we're now running on uh, over one T1 and we'll just sort of see as the podcast goes along and maybe uh, assess it at the end whether we seem to have an, have had an improvement. And if so, I did get a tweet from someone who said that I could use Cisco access lists to route UDP oh, of course over through only on, one. Yeah. Only one. Now, I knew I knew that there was a mechanism where I could use more of a hashing approach so that the the hash of the source and destination IPs and maybe even ports was used to so that you would always choose a consistent T1. The problem is that that would effectively cut my bandwidth down in half when, for example, I'm web surfing and things because I, I really don't want TCP only to use one. I only, I, but I would love, I have no problem if UDP protocol only uses one because DNS uses UDP. That's probably the only thing, other thing I'm using UDP for other than VOIP with you and Skype. So that would be fine with me. So I, I have to see if I can actually do that with a Cisco access. I didn't know that I was able to specify not to share them. Um, so we'll see how that works. But um, so... That's that's the uh, connection that we're talking over. And I, I guess when the bottom I, the bottom line that may be counterintuitive is it just doesn't mean automatically more band. And this is the buffer bloat problem too. Do, uh, more bandwidth does not automatically mean better results on uh, a UDP product like Skype. Um, and 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 having simply having a strong consistent connection without drop packets is more important than having the the combined three megabits that uh, the two T ones provide you. No, yeah, you want you want low jitter, and right. and, okay, and and jitter is a variation on buffer bloat. If ah. you know if pack if packets are queuing with other packets in a buffer, then the receiving end perceives that as jitter. It doesn't see the packets coming in at a uniform rate. It doesn't know why, but it knows that somewhere along the way, the packets got slowed down so that they were no longer coming in in you know uniformly and and what voip wants is just as uniform packet timing as possible so you want low jitter and of course you certainly want low loss and as we're we may be learning you also really want them to come in in proper sequence but i turned on uh i went to twit live this morning and happened to catch a replay of yesterday's MacBreak Weekly, where I heard you going off on Google is now evil. And so I thought, okay, wait a minute. Now, you, you have know? to understand, sometimes I get upset about things, and I, I overstate, the, uh, overstate them. We love you. We, uh, we, uh, we understand that. But I just thought I would let our Security Now listeners <laughs> know what, if, what it is that Google did to, uh, to trigger this. Well, it, it, it was stemmed from, and I didn't quote these uh, articles in, um, uh, in our conversation on MacBreak Weekly, but I'll quote them now. Uh, uh, it started with a, com- a uh, article uh, by Matt Honan, who is a, a really great writer on Gizmodo, which is a less than great uh, gadget blog, but, but Matt is good, so I'm going to give Matt credit. 
uh, Google's Broken Promise, The End of Don't Be Evil. Mm. And in it, he talks about where this Don't Be Evil uh, mission statement came from. It's an interesting story, actually. Um, you know, every company has a mission statement, and they're usually namby-pamby crap like, you know... <laughs> you know we, we will serve our customers. We'll do to the better. Best of our yeah, exactly. Uh, and uh, Paul Buhite, who was an early, I think, employee 23 or 24 at Google, later went on to write Gmail and is now um, at Facebook, I think. But a brilliant guy, and he's a venture capitalist, um, was at one of these co- corporate meetings at Google early on, and, and, and they said, we need a mission statement. And he said, I want to do something that's not namby-pamby corporate. How about just don't be evil? And they un- adopted it. And it was kind of famous that Google's kind of, plan was not to be evil now when that oh, I, I love that in sort of a, a hacker t-shirt sort right. of way i mean it's just like it's a great ethic but it doesn't mean much in fact first of all it's it's something not to do not what do they do but what they don't do uh but I, yeah it, it makes sense and, and remember you have to remember the context this was in a time when all the other search engines were selling paid results into the search results they were giving you search results that were tainted by advertising Ah. And so uh, in that context, I think it's very likely that that's what he meant was, you know, let's give people clean, good search results and not be so focused on the bottom line that we do things that are bad for the customers, but good for us. Um, now, that's a, that's my own gloss on, on what he said. So I think really where for me, where Google really has started to go wrong is not the privacy and tracking issue, although you might you might think that. And certainly that hasn't helped their reputation, doing things like, you know, uh, finding the, the putting a, a invisible form in iOS browsers in order to end around the third-party cookie uh, prohibition is clearly evil. <laughs> I mean, I, there's no question about that. Um, but, uh, and, and, you know, I, I, I will continue to defend, I think the word tracking when it comes to tracking cookies is, is such an anthropomorphic term that it really scares people more than it ought to. So I will defend uh, the idea of targeted advertising and tracking cookies to that extent. But that's not – so I don't think that's really what I'm talking about. What I, I think where Google started to go wrong was with Search Plus My World where they truthfully did start to modify their search results to benefit Google's bottom line. Now, they have lots of excuses for it, but really what happens is Google Plus is, um, is highlighted in search results, as is Yahoo, also a Google property. And now, if you if you go to uh, any and you know you go to Gmail or anywhere on Google, and you get you'll see your Google bar, your black bar at the top of all Google pages, now has a big ad for Google Play, which is essentially here. I'll show you. You know, so they 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 put this bar on all Google properties. That's that's not necessarily evil, but they're starting to use it for promotional value. Mm-hmm. Now, Google Play is of complete no use to anybody who isn't. Uh, using uh, an Android phone or Google's Music. It, this is a service that Google, a paid service that Google provides. And the fact that they're highlighting this so high just bugs the heck out of me. And, you know, the Google page used to be mm. famous. You'd go to Google.com so and it would just be so Google.com, search yes. box, and that's it. And they've more and more, uh, I think, subverted um, what used to be a very good business model, by the way, <laughs> uh, to promote their own uh, vehicles. And that's, to me, I don't think Google's more evil than Amazon, Apple, or any other company, or Facebook. They're all doing this. But I think this does, this is counter, runs counter to their original 
uh, mission statement, uh, Don't Be Evil. So that was, and it comes from this Matt, I recommend people read the Matt Honan article on uh, Gizmodo because that's a much more eloquent and I think effective statement of uh, what I'm talking about. Well, there was some good discussion that you and Andy and the group had on this week's Mac Break Weekly. So I just wanted to um, understand that. And also, uh, if our listeners are looking for another podcast that they're not already listening to, um, I can I can vouch for the fact that that was a good that was a fun dialogue that you guys had. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate. It. Yeah, well, I think that's a good show. More interesting to Mac uh, and uh, you know iOS owners. Although nowadays, I think <laughs> there's nobody who doesn't own something. Speaking of which, well, I, but you were also talking about you were talking about Amazon and right. And I mean, Google they look at, they all do this, right? I mean, this is yep. not this is nothing or Apple rather Amazon yeah, and Apple. Yeah. So by the way, this uh, speaking of Apple, uh, I, my liquipelled phone came. And I'll be doing a review on this uh, later, probably on Before You Buy, our product review phone. But I had my iPhone dipped <laughs> in an invisible clear shield. This is in, in lieu of a case. Wow, you can't even tell. Huh. You can't even tell. But and it, do they do it for you? Or oh, yeah, you they have to. attach a string to it? No, it oh. no, no, no. It says they don't recommend the device come in contact with any liquids. However... <laughs> Should it happen? Should it happen? It applies a protective water repellent coating to your personal electronics. I guess all the, boy, you couldn't even tell that it's been done. Huh. Huh. All right. So I'll do a review. I guess I'll have to dunk this in a bucket of water. Huh. <laughs> well, didn't, did, I guess it was, was it at CES? We saw them with phones yes. underwater. That's and them. they were, they were working. And it was because you and I talked about it and others that yeah. uh, they contacted us, said, well, give us something, we'll do it. Okay. And you hand over your phone. I I gave my phone. I didn't even wipe the data. That's how trusting I am. Well, um, in security news, yes, we 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 will cover coffee at the end. By the way, of our catch up, I don't know if this is in your. I haven't gone through your rundown yet, but did you see? There's a YouTube video about how law enforcement can completely get around that four digit passcode on your iPhone. Yeah, I did, and it is. I don't. I don't have it in the notes here, although. Uh, we don't have enough information about right. what it is they're video. doing. Yeah, yeah. They and it's a commercial product, you know, where they're selling it to law enforcement. The, the just for the people who haven't seen it, they they show running a piece of software, connecting the Mac that's running the software to an iPhone. You power off the iPhone, then you power it on while holding down the home button at the same time as it boots. Well, now that's and, that's a, a flaw that's been fixed, I think, in many phone, in many iPhones. And so, the, yeah, so so that's one of my questions. Is I thought that you know, was fixed. Is this still the case? Has it been fixed? Um, you know, they talk about um, in their on on their site how they have all these engineers who are continually needing to find new holes in firmware of phones that are being updated. So they're they're using some sort of a hack in this video to get around that and you know the question this raises is if you had the 10 strikes and you're wiped option <laughs> turned on which i do of course it uh, absolutely i do too because i you know we, we keep our devices backed up through itunes on our machines right. or even icloud now right so 
who cares if it gets wiped out? I definitely want it wiped out if right. some guy's trying to hack into it. So, you know, and I don't use four digits, of course. I have the full alpha keyboard turned on. So well, we, I, many use more a gest- I use a pattern. Is that better or worse? Yeah, just don't tell anybody that's what you do. You know, Oops. Dvorak... Oh, never mind. <laughs> well, no, no, it shows... Uh, actually, uh, no, on the iPhone, I use a number. I use a pattern on Android. I know. You're, you're able to look at the screen. Yeah, typically. Dvorak's always looking at the smudges <laughs> saying, I think I can figure uh, this out. <laughs> okay, I think I know what your number is. I've got your number. He's tricksy. Yeah, so anyway, it was an interesting video. It's not, you know, it's not clear that that means anything. As you said, we, we, we remember that hold the home button down right. problem. And that's apparently what they're doing. Maybe they have a different means around that, or maybe this is just old. I mean, for example, the the, the one one of the stories for this week is from a year ago, essentially, and that's this. It's it just sort of resurfaced because the paper that is going to be published about it is soon to be published. But this was work done um, on problems with single sign-on systems which Google and Facebook and others are using, where some researchers were able to, by reverse engineering the protocol that, the, that they could see passing through their browser, they were able to subvert the single sign-on system. And we've talked, of course, we did a whole podcast on exactly how OpenID works, and we'll remember that the way it operates, when you, when you go to a site that gives you the option of signing on to that site using a different site that knows you. For example, you know, sign on using Twitter, sign on using Facebook. When you, when you click the button, you, you are taken to a page on the site you're still visiting, which then gives your browser a redirection with a bunch of special headers to the site that is going to be the identity provider, it sees this special request coming in, which, you know, and, and has all of the required fancy crypto and authentication bells and whistles. And again, we covered this in detail um, uh, on a full podcast to that, to that effect. The, the identity provider then provides a response, which your browser redirects back to the so-called relying party, which is the one that is offering you the option of logging in through this identity provider. It then receives that packet, which it verifies and authenticates and, again, does all the crypto things and says, okay, fine, I'll accept that credential from that, from that identity provider site as yours. And that's the way it works. Well, it turns out naturally that... We're in first generation of these things, and we're often using downloadable kits where it's just, oh, you know, grab this Java-based solution and plug it in, and you'll be up and running with, with uh, multi-factor single sign-on technology. Well, there are bugs in these things, and there are problems with implementations. And in fact, there are problems with implementors in some case. For example, what the researchers found was that that it was possible to alter the data going by which the recipient of that data assumed was correct and had been signed but never checked the signature. 
So they broke the crypto signature, but the recipient of that just said, oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll take the data. We're not going to verify it. So, so that's anyway, an so implementation I'm, error. It, precisely. What I wanted, the, the problem is that, for example, Computer World's headline was study finds major flaws in single sign-on systems. And Ars Technica even said flawed sign-in services from Google and Facebook imperil user accounts. So, you know, and then, you know, so, quote, the researchers also found weaknesses in OpenID, a popular open standard that the researchers said Google, PayPal, and 9 million other sites use. 9 million other sites, that's great. Uh, to, to grant access to more than 1 billion accounts. The OpenID Foundation has since addressed those bugs as well. So, so what I want our listeners to understand who saw this, and I got a bunch of tweets from people who wanted to make sure that I was aware of it, so thank you for those, is the protocols are solid. Without exception, we, we understand how to do this well enough that that, that part we got right. As, exactly as you summed it up, Leo, it was just some implementation mistakes. It was, it was first-generation kits that, and, and assumptions being made by the users of the kits. Like, for example, they, weren't, they didn't have to make a call to verify the signature. The kit would do it for them. So in some cases, it was just a sort of a communications error in not understanding whose job it was to perform the, the the verification stuff. And so, and, and okay, and this was all last year, around this time, like, you know, April, May of 2011. And all of this has been fixed a year ago. It was fixed immediately because the researchers told everybody that whose systems they had been able to, to hack what they had done, and they were fixed immediately. Yeah. So it's like, oh, okay, thanks very much. So, I mean, and as far as everyone knows, no one has been exploited by this. So this was, you know, this made the news because the paper will be presented in a couple months. And, you know, but it's already been fixed. And but more importantly, there's nothing wrong with the concept. We certainly we have to implement it correctly. But that's always the lesson that we're we're encountering with security stuff is that, you know, yeah, yeah we, the, not only can the theory be right, but the implementation has to be there, too. We're going to give you a new uh, a new title, the debunker in chief, explainer <laughs> and debunker. Um, there was another story that made a lot of news, um, and this was actually uh, Ars Technica covered it initially on March 16th, and then it was updated with some additional information because what Ars reported really upset people, and this was that iPhones and iPads were leaking their past. MAC addresses. Uh, um, a security researcher by the name of Mark Wergler um, worked with ours and an ours reporter um, after some research he had done. He has a, a, a penetration services company and has written some apps that are sort of very much sort of fire sheep um, resembling where you can go to you know, an open access point and he gathers all this information over unsecured Wi-Fi and, and presents it in a nice fashion. So uh, th the best thing to do is just to read a little bit of this verbatim from ours page, uh, just the, the top of the story to give you a sense for 
what this is, it sets it up perfectly. As a security professional who gets paid to hack into high-value networks, Mark Wergler often gets a boost when his targets use smartphones, especially when the device happens to be an iPhone that regularly connects to Wi-Fi networks. That's because the iPhone, and by the way, this is true. This is verified, so keep that in mind. That's because the iPhone is the only smartphone he knows of that transmits to anyone within range the unique identifiers of the past three wireless access points. Past three? The past three (laughs) the user has logged into. Criminy. He can then use off-the-shelf hardware to passively retrieve the router's MAC addresses and look them up in databases such as Google's wow. location searches. So use that the, to track you. Uh, well, okay, get this. If, if you were at a Starbucks somewhere and you were capturing the MAC addresses of the customers that walk in who have iPhones yeah. with their Wi-Fi turned on, as most people would, and right. the phone is looking for a, an access point to access, you and you were able to quickly cross-reference those MAC addresses with their location... Yeah. then you know they're here at Starbucks and not home, and you know where they live. Oh, wow. So, yeah. You could, you could say, hey, let's go, uh, it's be a good guy, good time to go visit his house. Precisely. <laughs> he's going to be, he's going to be drinking <laughs> coffee for a while. Let's go surprise him. Yeah. Wow. Not good. Not good. So, by allow- so continuing, by allowing him to pinpoint the precise location of the wireless network, iPhones give him a quick leg up, so to speak, when performing reconnaissance on prospective marks. Quote, this is is interesting on a security level because I'll know where you work. I'll know where you live. I'll know where you frequent. Wergler, who is a a senior security researcher for Miami-based Immunity Inc., told ours. Continuing the quote, if the last access point you connected was your home, for example, I'll know right where to go to get to you later or to get your data or to visit while you're at Starbucks. You're kind of cute. Maybe I should visit your home later. (laughs) If I'm an attacker, no, this is true. If I'm an attacker that wants to break into your company, this becomes a disclosure that an attacker isn't going to pass up. The exposure of Mac addresses extends not only to iPhones, but to all Apple devices with Wi-Fi capabilities, he said. It means that whenever the wireless features are enabled and not connected to a network, for instance, during a brief encounter at a Starbucks, they broadcast the unique identifiers, and it's trivial for anyone nearby to record them. Wergler speculates the behavior is a feature designed to automate configuration for networks users for for networks users regularly access wow okay so this generated so much kerfuffle that ours asked robert graham to verify now robert graham is a person we've spoken of often he was the main networking techie behind black ice and he's still involved in, it's errata security is his firm so Robert knows what he's talking about, um, 100%. He fired up Wireshark, walked into Starbucks, um, turned on his iPad 3, 
and saw his home router MAC address sent off into the air and verified that this is, in fact, happening. So our listeners probably know enough, having listened to us discuss the, how the Ethernet works in our, in our networking fundamentals stuff, to even guess what's happening. This is an ARP query. This is the Apple products wanting to ease reconnection to a previously connected network. So they, the, the, unlike standard Ethernet devices, and actually, Leo, this may be also a function of the fact that they sort of stay on all the time. You know, they're not actually being shut down and rebooted, which may flush the ARP cache in the device. But the fact that, you know, Android uh, phones don't do it, Blackberries don't do it. Um, so, you know, it may, it may be something Apple is deliberately doing to to make the their users' experience more seamless. Because, for example, if you were to come into your house, your, what your phone is doing is it's, it's querying the last several access points, Wi-Fi points, that it has visited to see if it is again in the presence of one of those. Unfortunately, um, in order to do that, it's divulging what access point it was connected to because this is a you know arp is is a non-encrypted in uh, you know pre pre-connection low level um it stands for address resolution protocol the way devices talk over ethernet and as we know wi-fi is just a wireless version of the ethernet so it's got all the same protocols so i don't know what apple will how apple will respond to this because people are not happy, as you can imagine, that that their devices are are when in the presence of a Wi-Fi network and and connecting up, s- trying to connect to access points they have connected to before using their MAC address. And once upon a time, that wouldn't have been a problem, except that Google has been roaming the streets of the world, literally acquiring all the MAC addresses and noting where they are. Well, not just and, Google. There's a company called Skyhook that also does this. Yes, yeah. yes. And pre- now, predates Google doing it. Now, Google did increase the um, difficulty of making ad hoc queries by requiring you to provide two MAC addresses that are physically near each other. Uh-huh. You can't just say, give me one. You have to have two, and that, that's a nice that's a nice workaround. It, it allows the 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 fundamental underlying technology still to work, but you would have to actually be near one of those in order to have a MAC address of another access point nearby. You ask them both of Google. Google verifies that they are physically near each other. And so it's not that you've just been able to capture one at Starbucks. Right. So that, that, that raises the bar a little bit in a nice way um, that, that, I, that I think is a, is a clever solution to the problem. But this is still, um, I mean, this is, this is arguably a problem. In, I imagine I would Apple, say inarguably a problem. But I, <laughs> I think, I think yes. we, at Houston we have a problem, yes. I think, I think Apple will probably have to back off 
and and change their networking stack so that it no longer does this. Users, until we get an update, can simply turn off Wi-Fi um, and and not have the benefit of of seamless Wi-Fi connectivity when they walk into uh, Starbucks and and other similar um, un, you know uh, open access point locations. So and you know that might be a, a good idea if this sort of thing upsets you because you know it is the true that the world probably knows exactly where your router is geographically and it's certainly possible to to get that information um one way or another mm-hmm. so probably probably uh not good <laughs> no not good at all uh, <laughs> microsoft in the news is uh just this was just in the news today is getting involved in the http 2.0 effort a couple weeks ago we talked about speedy and covered the way that protocol works in detail um microsoft you know the, the, immediately when i saw this i sort of closed my eyes i thought oh no <laughs> here we go here we go again the standards wars <laughs> microsoft is saying that they're okay with speedy but. that they think it's a nice effort <laughs> but they <laughs> they well they say they they want things that are more oriented toward mobile devices. Well, then, that's but they true. haven't they haven't said what that means. And Speedy's developer at Google said, "Wait a minute, there's nothing on mobile right. about Speedy. It's any web browser, right?" What it does sound like maybe Microsoft wants, which I can see, is something a little bit more like the WebSockets API, which is in HTML5, and that is the, that is to say, more app or application level features. Um, what Google has done is they've they've sort of made a transparent improvement so that the browser still browses and the server still serves, but behind the scenes, it's doing that as as our listeners know from our, from that podcast in a much more efficient fashion in in many ways. But there really aren't any application level features that web applications could use in order to leverage that. And uh, so Microsoft, Microsoft, I think, has a point that web, the WebSockets API does provide that sort of feature, although it's layered right now on top of HTTP, so it, it still has the, has the, um, uh, the, the underlying uh, carrier technology uh, you know the transport layer of HTTP integrating all that more tightly makes sense. So the good news is we're moving towards a next generation HTTP one way or the other, which looks like it's going to incorporate uh, you know the the best of all of these efforts. It'll probably you know <laughs> it'll it'll be slow and take a while. Someone it was uh, Simon uh, Zarafa um, made a comment about Twitter no longer using. Um, uh, Speedy. I just saw his tweet earlier what? today, hmm. and I haven't had a chance to verify it. Huh. Um, I do have. Um, I've got my little Speedy Gizmo uh, displayer in Chrome. Let me go to Twitter.com. Why would they? And... They must have found something better if they're not using Speedy. You know, what's interesting is that Twitter has a development toolkit, which is now being widely adopted by people as a framework. And if it had Speedy built into it, and I'm not sure it doesn't, 
that would be uh, a really cool way to spread speedy to websites easily. Well, um, I am at twitter.com over an HTTPS secured connection, and my little indicator is off. So, oh, and it was oh man, was on earlier. Oh man, well, uh, well, hmm. you know, they may have had, a, they may have found a problem. <coughs> Excuse me, um, which they will get around yeah. to fix. Cer- I, cer- I, 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 certainly, any, if any, if somebody would find a problem, it would be Twitter. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, maybe there's a, maybe there is a solution. They have a framework called Bootstrap, which a, a lot of people are using now uh, to oh. create sites. Oh, cool! Yeah, in fact, uh, Gina Trapani just uh, did a site with Bootstrap. Let me just see if Bootstrap supports Speedy. It's S P D Y, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, responsive design tools. No, it doesn't look like uh, it's built in. That's too bad because that would be great. It's a CSS-focused. I guess it's not. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So it's not low enough it's level. Not low enough to, level, yeah. Yeah. So it, it would be compatible with it, but, but wouldn't require it. Right. Um, Brian Krebs, our intrepid security reporter who spends a lot of time digging around down in the dark recesses of the Internet, uh, warned recently that the latest Java flaw is being actively exploited and successfully he he reported that the the java flaw that was fixed middle of last month which is version 6 update 31 or version 7 update 3 has been added now to the very popular exploit kits which many of the latest exploits are being built on and as a consequence has dramatically increased their penetration success rates which says that many people not our listeners, I'm sure, um, have not up, do have Java installed and aren't paying attention to it and aren't keeping it current. Now, I mentioned that, of course, because last week's tool for, for measuring network buffer bloat required Java. And I have to say that um, I was looking favorably at it from a standpoint of, wow, if they can do all of that, um, I could definitely have some fun doing low-level network things in a way that was platform independent. Yes, it requires Java, but, you know, I'm well, afraid the, good the future news is probably does. All browsers now uh, are, by default, don't turn on Java, I think, right? I mean, I know Chrome says, do you want me to allow Java? Isn't right. that the default now in most cases? Um, well, you can you can definitely disable it. Yeah, and but that would I think be you're right that you have to enable it. Right. What what Brian suggested I liked, and that is if if you find yourself often needing Java, you could go the multi-browser approach. Yeah. For example, it's easy to disable in Firefox under Add-ons. You just say you know turn that off, and then for example, you might just run Java under Chrome and use Chrome when you need Java, but don't use it when you're just right. out cruising around the Internet or, or vice versa or any combination of those. So right. I did want to remind people, if you just go to java.com, and then there's a link, do I have Java? You can click that, and it will run a test to tell you if you have it, and if you do, if it's current. And I, you know, I just did mine this morning to make sure although I was sure that I had done it a month ago, and I said, yes, you've got update 6, or version 6, update 31. So I was like, ah, oh, okay, good. I always thought Java um, was sandboxed and so was less vulnerable. The applets were less light. I know there are problems, but it seems to me that if you combine the fact that it by, opt, by, de, by, def, by default it's opted out 
it, it automatically updates and uh and uh it's fair it's more secure say than javascript it seems like it's not a bad choice let's put it that well, way well it's not a bad choice um and what you're thinking of is that it is it has always been a an interpreted um you know byte token style language it was built as you as we all remember you know back in the days what is a bill joy for a set top boxes right. and and so and and meant to be platform independent processor independent you have a you have a java runtime which interprets the byte code if the runtime were perfect then you could argue no nothing you could do uh, in terms of giving code to the runtime could represent a problem. So it has the potential of being very secure. Um, the problem is there's just this huge tendency to sacrifice security for speed. You know, even Google and w- with the Chromium project, there is a move afoot to run native code in Chrome, not just JavaScript, but actual intel executable and google says oh we ha- you know we have a way to to corral it and make it safe and it's like uh, okay you know they I mean they they really want that ultimate performance is going and uh, it'd be great if we could have everything i'll have to we'll look cuz you know when java uh, for a long time java had this uh, sandbox model where if it was untrusted code unless you had a certificate and you explicitly trusted it. It couldn't access the file system. It couldn't access the networking. It couldn't access browser internals. It was very much protected. And then maybe over time, that's a, as you say, that, that people want convenience. That's eroded. Um, but it was for a long time. It was deemed mostly secure. I mean, there are malicious applets, but uh, you have to trust them mm. explicitly. I think. So um, a little quick iPad uh, follow up. Uh, the news came out this week that it may be the LED lighting that has been the source of heat. And I can confirm from my own experience that when I have turned the the backlighting up all the way, that does really seem to increase the heat. I, nothing that I do on my iPad 3 is processor intensive. So it's, I'm not doing gaming with lots of animation or movement or anything, but... It was when I had the light turned up. And in fact, because of this next generation super high resolution screen, the the lighting is two and a half times brighter. That is, there is two and a half times more backlighting and that generates heat because it is pulling power from the battery. So um, that could certainly be part of it. Then there was just in the last day or two some controversy about the iPad charging that it wasn't it was saying it was 100% charged but it wasn't really that that some some investigators discovered yeah that by the way clear- bogus i know apple's but responded it, 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 yes <laughs> completely fooled the in, quote investigators which is a shame cuz this I is ha- the guy from displaymate i mean i've always trusted him in the past he just yep. kind of got fooled well he um, he noted he, some behavior yeah, he wasn't wrong right. in what it was doing. And frankly, I'm glad to know they're doing this. Yes. Because I have worried, for example, when I have a laptop that is charged up, but it's just sitting there on the adapter, I have wondered if the battery isn't over time mm-hmm. just, you know, just draining without any attention being given by the laptop. 
And so sometimes I'll like disconnect it deliberately and reconnect it so the laptop checks it again and hey sure enough it'll go into charging mode and and bring the battery back up because it had drifted away right. from a full charge over time and as it turns what out apple, that's exactly what apple's doing uh, yes mechanically apple is taking active responsibility for it and and so it's it's bringing the battery down and then bringing it back up again and bringing it down and bringing it back up in order to keep it, you know, to have knowledge that it's keeping it up at 100%. Right. And unfortunately, you, with, with, with our current technology, there's so much battery charge monitoring on the cells themselves that they, there is some self-discharge of lithium ion. So you do need to keep an eye on it, which is what Apple's doing. So for anyone who was wondering. And then... I can now tell you, Leo, that I still prefer reading on my large Kindle. Ah, the DX, the e-ink yes. version. The e-ink over, even over the iPad 3. The iPad 3 is amazingly gorgeous. And I have one with no anti-glare film and one with anti-glare film. And I can't decide what I want because the anti-glare that I have does knock down that super high retina resolution. It, it, it sort of gives it sort of a twinkly, sparkly effect, sort of a specular feeling where when I compare it, I, and I've left the, the other pad with no anti-glare so that I can, I can do some A-B comparison, there's no question that that glossy screen is even more important when you've got this kind of pixel density if you really want to see the the the, the the quality and the clarity of the of the LCD, you know. On the other hand, it is a problem when you're when you're you know there's light behind you or you're outside or you're in a restaurant with some bright lights above and you're you know you've got them shining into your pad. So, you know, I like them both sort of in a different way. But more than either of them, just for reading, I still think a reflective display is a lot easier on the eyes. I love my Kindle DX. Yeah, I don't think as, it's a resolution a, issue. I think it's having backlit versus reflective. I think that's the oh, yeah, I was Unfortunately, I was confusing about nine different issues there. In one. <laughs> no, no, and I know what you're talking about. And that was that was really what old people always said is, well, I don't care. You know, the quality of the screen isn't the issue. It's that the screen itself is emissive. And that's yes. not as easy on my eyes as reflective. And some of it's just, conditioning, right? Because we grew up reading re reflective materials. I don't know. I'm I'm able to be reconditioned, except <laughs> when it comes to cold brew coffee. Oh, how do you? Okay, so <laughs> um, the the you bought it. You this, bought the toddy. The, uh, of course, I have all this stuff, Leo. <laughs> I'm going to find out what's going on. Um, so the the I, I tweeted earlier this week. I said, "Bite me," because I like bite. Yeah, there's like no bite. My coffee. There is no It's real smooth. Bite. There's no acid. It is bizarre. Now, yeah. you know, I, I also have the stomach of a billy goat. Right. I mean, a lot I'm of sure. us, especially as we get older, do I, I my stomach gets upset. I just had a cup of acidic coffee and I feel it. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> so, so this comes from our discussion last week of funraniumlabs.com, the black blood of the earth, cold brewed coffee. And then now the good news is that toddy, that, that, that brewer that you got and I have here too, yep. is only $30. Right. It was, it was an inexpensive experiment. I, uh, I, mean, I lost a pound of, of Starbucks espresso. You really don't like it. Uh, 
No, I just it's just it doesn't taste like coffee. It just sort of freaks me out. It it uh you know it I, mean, is, it I should like, have warned you because the funranium is just like that. That black blood of the earth. It's just too smooth. Yeah, it is ultra smooth, and I don't know. I, now, so the good news is, if there are listeners who have a problem with acidity, right. this solves it, baby. There, I mean, it is it is smooth, but it just isn't coffee. I want to I want to be, be bitten. Well, you won't like this then. Don't don't watch, because <laughs> I've purchased uh, another device. Uh, let me show you real quickly. This is. Uh, it's just pretty. That's why I bought it. It is. Um, it's a wooden rack. <laughs> I saw that. I it's thought, like no, a no, distiller. Don't go there. Yeah, no. yeah. It's a little pricey. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, but I thought it'd be kind of cool in my house to have this <laughs> on the counter. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> oh, oh it's lord, looking. It's well. That's kind. It's more like it's just cool than anything else. Uh-huh. Uh, this is called. I'll, I'll give you the name so that it, those of you who want to find out more, it is on Amazon. It looks it's, like a coffee guillotine. Yeah, it really looks like a device, right? Um, and it's tall. Um, yeah, it looks like a chem lab sort of. Yeah, setup. it's from. It's called a Yama Y A M A cold drip coffee and tea maker uh, from Northwest Glass. And uh, let me see how tall it is. It's two feet tall. So. Um, the idea oh, it looks it look, it looks like it's seven feet tall. I know it does look like it goes a long way. It looks a little bit like a dis, a distillery. It's got you know mm-hmm. a lot of glass. That's one of the reasons I got it because the uh, the toddy. Uh, this is a little more expensive than the toddy. It's two hundred bucks, but the toddy is is plastic. They say it's not. You know, there's no BPA in it, and you know, so it's safe, et cetera, et cetera. But it is a plastic brewing device, and and it took all day, right? Twelve hours. So you 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 put the coffee. Oh, I in gave here, mine thirty six. You let it just go. Whew, I let it go for thirty six. My my mine said I think I got a different version or strong brewed it. Mine was Filtron. I ah, think was the okay. was the yeah. And so I it you basically I ground. I used my our, you know the 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 nice uh, burr grinder that we have and ground right. the entire pound of Starbucks. Uh, dumped it into this thing and then it drizzled uh, the amount of water in slowly in the top. Right and it. It filtered. It filled up over the course of about an hour, and then I let it sit there for a day and a half, thirty-six hours. They say longer and, the better, or the longer the richer. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then I drained it all. In fact, this said that some people who want to stretch their coffee dollar will then use half the amount of water <laughs> a second time no, to like no, no, run no. through, r- run it through the grinds. We're not grounds. stretching our coffee dollar no, here. I wasn't. We, I wasn't <laughs> stretching. And you know, and in my case, the result is this syrup. You know, this right. this super concentrated it's, coffee. Syrup. It's got flavor, doesn't it? I mean, it's not that it doesn't have flavor; it just doesn't have that bite. Yeah, I, I, you're right. It definitely has flavor, and I just thought, no, I, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I, I'm with you. It tastes, it feels watery because yes. it doesn't have that acidity. It feels like there's nothing going on. It's just kind of tea. Water. Yeah, it just, it's different. It's very flat to me. So anyway, we'll have anyway to, so we'll now have I know. <laughs> hey, you know, this, this, this Yama is like 200 bucks. So you, I'm glad you didn't go that far. No. But, but uh, it will be, it will look like I am making meth in my house. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lordy. Well, Lord. I have a short note from, very short note from, uh, a Spinrite listener who was anonymous. He just he said, I'm a computer maintenance freak. I had been experiencing a problem which turned out to be a software glitch. However, 
I was at the time afraid my drives were going to go. I learned about Spinrite while reading up on smart computing. He has those capitalized, so maybe that's a site. And he said, double-checked with my office computer guy who highly recommended Spinrite. Purchased and downloaded it today. It took a few hours to run through my drives. Seems like things are running better and faster than ever. So thanks. This was a great investment, and I will again spin right to my maintenance schedule. So he's got the right idea. Get it before your drives die, and they probably never will. You know, I think that that is true about many things. We're going to go to our questions in just a second, but I want to talk a little bit about uh, backup. And it is true that there is no point in backing up after you've lost all your data. It just... That's no. Well, actually, it's very quick to back up. It's fast. There's an advantage there. It is quick, but it is certainly not as effective as doing it ahead of time. So, uh, as is often the case with security, uh, proactive is better than postactive or def or af- what post post facto. Um, Carbonite is online backup, so that's one thing to like about it. Now, it's also one thing I should warn you about. It's it's a it's a negative as well. If you are, and I get these calls all the time, um, if you're backing up terabytes, do the math, and you have a 368 kilobit connection upstream. It's your upstream that matters. Do the math. It's not practicable. So, Carbonite is not for backing up massive amounts of data any more than any other online backup service is because unless you have massive upstream bandwidth, and most of you don't, uh, it's just not going to happen. It's not. It's going to take too long. It's not going to be worthwhile. So what you should do, and this is why Carbonite does this, is do the free two-week trial. In most cases, that's going to be enough to get your first set done. Anything under, uh, say, 200 gigabytes, you're going to have no problem uh, in, in two weeks backing it up. But, but again, it, it is dependent on your, on your bandwidth. If, if you've got a slow DSL, it's not going to happen. Um, so try it free. Go to Carbonite.com. Use our Security Now offer code. You don't need a credit card. And you'll get two weeks free. And you'll get a sense of how much data you can back up in that two weeks. The nice thing is once, it, once the initial backup is done, however big, the, the, then it continues anytime you're online to back up changes. And those are quick. Those take no time. So uh, this, is, this is a nice thing about Carbonite. You can even be at a you know, slow access point, or even on an airplane. If you're online, you're backing up. You write a do, you know, you're working on a word, pre, a word a processor or a PowerPoint uh, presentation on the plane. Now with the Wi-Fi, it's backing it up. You leave your uh, laptop at the airport, as happens to literally hundreds of thousands of people every year. Don't worry, you've got the data. You can access your Carbonite data anytime. Log into your Carbonite account. It's cloud storage, Mac or PC, smartphones and tablets too, and there's your stuff. Unlimited, less than $59 a year. Unlimited for a single internal hard drive. If you have multiple drives, external drives, uh, multiple computers, they've got plans for that too. They have home and business and home office as well. Carbonite is affordable, effective. It, it's secure too, 128-bit SSL at all times, and you can further encrypt it using using a strong encryption. I think it's triple S. Uh, and you hold the key. They don't hold the key. They don't have access to it. So that's nice, too. Completely secure, completely private. Cloud storage and less than $59 a year. What more could you ask for? Try it free right now. If you decide to buy after the two-week trial, you'll get 14 months for the price of two, two free months when you use the offer code security now. you got to back it up to get it back. So do it right. With Carbonite, we had a caller on the radio show 
uh, this week who said, I bought Carbonite two weeks ago. My hard drive died a week ago. <laughs> and I'm so glad. <laughs> he said, I got it all back. If I had not, you know, and that's the problem with backup. You got to do it before you lose the drive. All right, Steve, I've got questions. I know you have answers. Yeah. You ready to launch into it? Yeah. I want. I just wanted to mention, you know, Jenny uses Carbonite because she's Perfect writing Jenny. stuff. Yep. Yeah. And and these users who who want terabytes of stuff backed up, well, these are not terabytes they created. These right. are no one creates terabytes. Right. You know, the, these are movies and and CDs and DVDs that they've ripped onto their hard drive. Well, the point is that presumably you own that content, and so if the worst happened, you haven't lost you it. Get it because, back. That's a good point. Yeah, you, yeah. you know, and and so you know the the proper role. For this kind of of utility like Carbonite is the is your creative work product the stuff you actually create that is yours you know your 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 the email you have written that you want to retain and you know as as you said PowerPoint presentations you know your your productivity and that's never going to be more than than a few tens of megabytes right even so, even uh, all of the photos I've taken over the last ten years of digital photography. <clears throat> I think is less than 30 or 40 gigs. Uh, what Carbonite does do after 200 gigs, they slow you down. So that's another issue is you, you don't want to be ah. backing up more than 200 gigs at a time. They do throttle after 200 gigs. So, But 200 gigs is a lot of data. We're, oh getting so, we're so spoiled. You know, you know I, have, and, I have 32 gigs on my keychain, you know, and so we get spoiled now. I remember the first hard drive was fi- I had was 5 megabytes, cost $2,000 for 5 megabytes. I couldn't put one image from my camera on that. And I do feel like a bit of a dinosaur, Leo, when I read people complaining that they can't be watching TV right. when they're walking in the park on their smartphone. It's like, what planet are we on? Watching television? Now, I mean, we, but Steve, we were lucky if you had Morse code. You are a dinosaur because how many kilobytes is Spinrite? Oh, it's 185K. Not megabytes. Yeah. Kilobytes. Yeah, 185K. Yeah, one of the things that happens is people download it, it like too five or six times because they don't think anything happened. It's like, no, you've, you've got six copies of it now. So. It, when it happened right away, I don't understand. It's less than a second to download. How could that be? All right, question number one. An anonymous listener dropped by to make a quick, uh, however important point, suggesting that doubling key size is security theater remember we had a question two weeks ago somebody says well why don't we just you know we went from 1024 to 2048 why don't we just go to 5000 you know 96 or something if your key is large enough he says to or she says to make a brute force attack infeasible a longer key doesn't add security beyond that point a determined bad guy will try to exploit exploit a weaker link and there are plenty of those like buggy software spear phishing social engineering to get a keylogger installed. Bad guys know the old story. If you're hiking in the woods, you don't need to outrun the bear as long as you can outrun the other hikers. <laughs> I thought this was a good point. Um, <laughs> I love that analogy. Yeah, so it's, you know, it's the weakest link. Right. And at some point we know, in fact, in fact, true crypto failure is almost unknown. Um, I'm trying to, I mean, almost, I want to say, because there have been, historically, there have been some flaws found in older 
technology. And, you know, we're moving off. You know, we no longer use MD4. But, but even, even RC4 that was the crypto used in the very first Wi-Fi, you know, the WEP Wi-Fi, it wasn't the fault of the crypto. It was the fault of, again, the implementation wrapper that the crypto contained. And so that we continue to see, just like we were talking about open ID and other things. It's like, hey, all of this is all super security and signed and, and keys and all that. But then they forgot to check, <laughs> see if the signature was valid. Right. Like, oops. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. So, but the, the one thing I did want to remind us of sort of the, that is that is a counterpoint to this notion that you know doubling key size is security theater is the notion of future proofing because that's something to keep in mind you know there's this specter of quantum computers hovering out there that are sort of going to just instantaneously try all possible keys at once right you know <laughs> we're a long way from there and lord knows what happens when when those exist because the end of the world as we know it um <laughs> But but for for now, it is significant. I think that 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 NSA facility is not attempting to crack things today. It's they're going back and going to crack things that they've been recording for the last fifty years. Back when back back, back when the the underlying security technology was strong enough for then, but not for now. So there is this notion of the future. At the same time, um, you know, 128 bits is plenty for connection-oriented things like Carbonite, for example, is using 128 encryption. That's a session key used on a point-to-point -point link, which is regenerated and changed every time you reconnect. And also, sometimes on the fly, you're able, you're able to, to renegotiate a key on on a running basis on on these connections so 256 bits is plenty for data at rest as opposed to data in motion so you want to choose key lengths properly but our, our, the anonymous list the anonymous listener who wrote this question is certainly correct that once you are future proof then all you do are all, all you're doing is just wasting space and and time yeah, yeah. and you know processor cycles and, but, and and heating up your iPad 3 needles. <laughs> By the way, it is not that. High. It's just nicely warm. Yeah, it is. It's a I think of it as a hand warmer. A sheet warmer. I love it. I I don't regret the iPad 3 oh, at all. Oh man, I love it. Yeah. It's, it's a nice device. A lot of people saying it's a oh, it's just a mere incremental upgrade. I don't know how they could say that when they look at the screen. It is more than an incremental upgrade and the camera. <laughs> Amazing screen. Yeah. Yeah. Al Craybill in Arlington Heights, Illinois found some buffer bloat. SN345 equals fantastic. I ran the test and got network buffer measurements. He's talking about the netalizer test. In fact, bit.ly slash SN345 will take you to that netalizer test. Don't all do it at once. <laughs> we broke it last time. They, but like I said, they wrote and they said, thank you. We appreciate it. We're getting a lot of data for it because it's a, it's a, t a study they're doing. Neat. And neat, I, neat. I gave it to uh, Russell, our IT guy. I said, this is a great thing to have in your uh, toolkit because we learned a lot. So this guy had an uplink of, uh, f uh, I guess, an uplink latency of 490 milliseconds, downlink of 2,000 milliseconds. Yikes. That's, that's what we call a bloated buffer. 
So what can I do about it? Is there any way to tell where the bloated buffer is? My router, a D-Link DI-604, is about eight years old. Could that have too much buffer? And this is the problem, that um, I saw some amazing measurements from our listeners. One guy was at, at seven and a half minutes, uh, well, no, not minutes, seven and a half seconds. I um, mean, so, you know, 7,500 milliseconds um, in one direction. And, um, and the problem is that we're in that awkward place where something is getting a lot of attention, yet... As the stickers say on the back of our televisions, there are no user serviceable parts inside. You know, once upon a time, you had tubes, and you'd take the back off the TV set, and remember, they had you'd, you'd not want to use one of those cheater cables that allowed you to keep the thing fired up with the back off, because um, you wouldn't want to electrocute yourself, and you'd pull the tubes out and take them down to the drugstore and ran, run through them through the tube tester. I'm sure you, you remember those days, Leo. And... Um, you know, now we've just got boxes that are closed. And at the moment, while this issue is still so new, there just there isn't anything for us to tune. Um, there is a, the, the newer version, the newest version of Linux, uh, 3.3, is beginning to address this. Hopefully, that will make it in its, in, into some, some router firmware that you know, like the tomato or the w, the DDWRT stuff, where we'll begin to get this addressed. At the moment, right now, I don't think there's much that anyone can do. And I mean, this is where I guess I'm glad that I'm as busy and backlogged as I am with existing projects, because um, I mean, I could just go off on this <laughs> and never return. Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, it's know, fascinating. Oh, I, I, I would love to do a utility that would, you know, tell you where in your link the problem was, and and it's possible. Um, but uh, no, don't worry. I'm not going to let myself get distracted by that. So, Al, I, I just, you know, unfortunately, it's useful to know we have the problem. There's not much we can do except to, to work to minimize. The buffering, which is to say, if you know you've got a when, when something is saturating your bandwidth, if when you know that in addition to saturation you also have delay, then what you need, the only thing you can do, if you're unable to find the delay and remove it, is work on never whatever it takes not to allow that buffer to get full. Which, for example, means being careful not to be uploading a big file when other people in the in the household are trying to be interactive on their computers you know do that some other time so you know and and so at least now we understand what's going on which is a big step forward uh, although it's, it also creates some frustration in people who want to fix it yeah yeah well i'm sure you know i, I think we'll see fixes uh, in time i mean we'll see something i hope Steve Coakley in Phoenix, Arizona, found router buffer excessive buffering. Oh, really? I, another one. I ran the Netalyzer utility you mentioned on Security Now, and beside again, bit.ly slash sn345. And besides excessive buffering, I got a lot of strange errors about DNS not uh, working correctly. It doesn't look like I can change the DNS server in my Quest Action Tech Q1000 DSL modem router. Uh, it's set to, and it gives some... Uh, IPs. IPs. He changed it to uh, the 4.2.2.2, uh, 
which is uh, Verizon, right? Or is that level one? Anyway, um, used, actually, it used to be level three, three and I mean, I'm yeah. not sure whose name is Who on it. I think, level, yeah. I think level three still. Yeah. And ran the test again. This time, all the odd DNS errors went away, and it only found two problems. The first one, network packet buffering may be excessive. We estimate your uplink is having 5,700 milliseconds of buffering. Five, yeah, 5,700 milliseconds of buffering. And we estimate your downlink is having 450 milliseconds of buffering. Wow, 5.7 seconds is a long time. That Can anything be done about that? Can I even tell where it's happening? This is kind of like the previous question. Uh, the second problem, DNS Resolver Properties lookup latency was 340 milliseconds. That doesn't seem so bad. Okay, so uh, I did want to mention that that test tests a lot of other things. And many users found, um, just as, um, uh, as Steve Coakley did, found other problems with their network that they were unaware of. Um, my sense is that 340 milliseconds is a little slow for DNS lookups. I don't know why it would be so slow. Maybe it's just the DSL connection that he's got. Um, I want to remind people that the, my own GRC's DNS benchmark exists and that that might be a good thing to use. There may be some solid publicly available DNS servers other than the level three servers, although those generally do perform up near the top of the list. But the DNS benchmark from GRC, you just, you know, you just, in fact, I think you just put DNS benchmark into Google and, and you know, I've pretty much claimed that territory now because the, the benchmark <laughs> is a good one. Yeah, it is. It is Windows only, but it is friendly with Linux under wine and uh, and you can run under Mac with wine as well. Um, and again, um, you know, we've discovered huge buffers. The, um, the one of the other problems that we have is that. It could be ISPs buffering in their routers, so those buffers are completely inaccessible. Um, and, and also we know that later model network adapters have large ring buffers in the kernel. So that's introducing delay, and we may never have access to that. So again, the best thing we can do is like ask everybody, make noise, jump up and down, hopefully... Um, this is a problem which just sort of, well, we know that it just sort of crept up on us. Nobody was really paying attention to it. Now a lot of attention is, is coming to it um, because people are downloading large content, not just being interactive. This was never a problem when everything was just web surfing, clicking on links and being interactive. This became a problem when, you know, some member of the family wants to watch TV over their Internet connection, which, you know, was crazy five years ago. Now crazy. it's crazy talk. <laughs> now it's what people do. You know, while other people do. want to, it is. It's just, it's amazing. Well, in so, fact, often uh, three or four people in the house are watching different channels on their uh, iPad, their TV, their Netflix, their Roku. Um, I see that in our house all the time. And then, and then somebody wants to Skype. It's just, it's uh, what a world. It's amazing. It's amazing. It works. Bandwidth consumption is not going to go down. Anytime no. soon. I think we've realized that. I think Comcast realized it three years ago. That's why they put caps on. Uh, Magic Johnson, or no, just Magic John, in Colorado, USA, needed to comment about our server security conversation. I listened with horror, Steve, 
as you agreed with Leo's supposed expert. You did not agree, by the way. I want to make this clear. You sat there and nodded, but you didn't necessarily agree. I maintain websites with in excess of 14 million unique visitors a day. We have never been compromised, yet we see hundreds of attempts per hour. It's not PHP that is the problem. It is the code that is written in PHP. Well, okay, thank you. <laughs> Master of the obvious. And the willingness of a system administrator not to correctly set file and directory permissions. And that one I might agree with. Bad code can be written in any language, as can good code. The difference is bad coders are tempted toward the use of toy languages such as PHP. I don't think he understands what I was talking about. There's no excuse for the injections that have happened in the placement of code on Leo's system. I was especially horrified by your acquiescence, which, again, you did not do, to my comments that in the good old days we had a CGA bin, CGI bin directory. We still have a CGI bin if we want, he says. Well, I wanted, I wanted just to come back to this briefly because I had a nice exchange with Bear. Bear, who is a, a pretty good expert. And uh, what happened was... Runs uh, systems some, for Mozilla, among others. Okay. There was some... Yeah, there was some similar sentiment that I tripped over in the GRC news groups. Oh, I more than and tripped I went, over it. I get it nonstop. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went over and I said, you know, guys, I'm... I don't... You know, we don't have all the facts. We don't know what's going on. Um, I'm unwilling to pile on someone who I don't know and I just you know it just doesn't seem fair to me and I said so you know we just don't have enough information and bear someone must have said hey you know this is being talked about over at GRC so he to his immense credit came over and said hey it's me um I have a thick skin so let's talk about this um and and I had what I had posited was that 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 twit was in transition and this is you know from things that you had said leo i mean you were quite literally a cottage industry for quite a while just down the street and you know and and bear commented in the in the in the uh news group for example that he had found the problem and turned it off but somebody else turned it back on and that you know, that that was really the way that this became, you know, came to notice and, and was the problem that it was. And what they really said was that, you know, that you guys are growing and that there's a need for policy. You well, know, but, that but, it, but, but let's put that aside because, of course, that's a bad mistake. But it, the larger question is, and this is the thing that I uh, really would love to get to the bottom of, is that as long as a website is being changed in any way, you're going to have security flaws and that uh, breaches are not... This is my real question. Are breaches uncommon or common? And, and I'm, I, I'm not an expert. I cannot, yeah. I cannot say. Um, Bear is of the opinion and, knows, and runs a very big site and knows others who run other well-known sites. And he's of the opinion that as we have become more and more high profile, we are certainly getting more attacks. And that it is very, very difficult, to, if nay impossible, to prevent breaches of some kind. The question is really how quickly you know, you see them and modify them. But on the other hand, people like uh, our, our commentator here um, do raise the point, well, you, sh you know, Magic John says you shouldn't allow file systems to be written to. 
um, you know, shouldn't be able to do. But I think that those, you know, that's the point of an exploit is that it allows somehow allows uh, access higher level. I don't know. I don't. I'm not well, an expert. I don't know. You know, and we we don't know. None of us know except whoever is your. You know, I mean, the gurus of your web Where's server. There's the guy. For example, He's the guy who runs our know, servers. So you know, are all of the directories read only except like r- very carefully tuned so that you know the equivalent of CGI bin. I mean, for example, at GRC, there's only one location where an- where anything can be run. Well, and this was Everything- my problem with PHP. PHP. Uh, unlike CGI bin, will, can be put in any directory and run from any directory. So, I mean, that admittedly, the all directories should be uh, write-proof, except that you have to have some directories that are, can be written to, right? Well, okay, so what you have with PHP is similar to what you have with ASP, you know, Microsoft's Active Server Pages. The idea being that it's, you know, and, and our listeners have, are tired of hearing me talk about JavaScript, JavaScript is scripting run by the browser. Right. So this is PHP, all server side. Yeah. Exactly. PHP, like active server pages and other technologies, there is server side JavaScript also. Anyway, those are scripts being run by the server. So there, the server is not delivering static pre written HTML, it's actually running the PHP code to create these pages on the fly. And, you know, and, and so that's, I mean, it is a powerful technology, but it's, it's also one that you have to be far more careful in deploying. So, so what I, I think we can definitively say is that it is, from everything we've seen, all the evidence, and it's not like Twit is the only site on the planet being hacked. I mean, we're, we're talking about hacks all the time. All, I mean, like, you know, RSA, the security company, is, is, you know, getting breached by exactly these, you know, these sorts of things. So what we can definitively say is it is really hard. There are, you know, old curmudgeons out there who want to say, oh, no, this is really easy. It's, it's not easy. Um, I mean, my site is easy because I don't have any server-side scripting stuff like that. I haven't had to deal with this. I do have static HTML, and then my own stuff generates dynamic pages like the Shields Up page and 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 so forth. So you know, I'm. Uh, that's why I really can't speak to the challenges because I haven't faced them myself. But right. but but we know that security is difficult, and so so I think. I would imagine that the lesson that that Twit has learned is it's time to really focus on on security. Give I mean there 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 probably shouldn't be a situation where Bear could disable something which is now a known problem and somebody else could turn it back on again. Well, so that, yeah, and a, that was a miscommunication, and that's certainly yeah. you know that's not going to happen and, again. And so the, 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 you know there needs to be a single. A single point of responsibility, somebody who really has that that job, and and you know, sort of like well, that's a problem because we have web developers that are working on the site. Now we we you know, uh, I think the big a big problem was we uh, with his previous uh, Twit.tv development, we didn't have a production and a development site. We were doing it stuff. Code went live, live, and that was a big mistake. We're not going to do that anymore. Yeah. Um, so so also there's some live and learn. Yeah. But but uh, I don't know. 
I don't know. I don't understand. <laughs> it isn't easy. I mean, these the we you know. I don't want to have to hire a full time security sysadmin, but and, and I can't afford it, so I don't know what the answer is. You know, so I don't know what the answer is. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're you're wanting to have a fancy, feature rich site, and the truth is that's hard to do. There, I mean, our, this technology has as is fundamentally flawed from a security standpoint this technology you know as i've said before if you have a system where you can upload an sql command that the server will execute and i mean that's just crazy it's easy to implement but it's it, it's a disaster from a security standpoint and frankly and the idea of pages being php so that all of your server needs to be executable that's horrifying too I mean, it doesn't have to be that way, but boy, is it simple. And so, I would say in my defense that uh, Richard Clark, who used to be the uh, counterterrorism sure. czar uh, in the uh, U.S. administration, said every major U.S. company has already been hacked by the Chinese government. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, if it were really easy, uh, I don't know. He says it's pretty clear the U.S. government did the Stuxnet attack. I thought that was interesting. I think there was some minor Israeli role in it. So we wrote Stuxnet, according to Richard Clark. Israel might have provided a test bed, for example. But I think that the U.S. government did the attack. I think this is fascinating. And I, we talked a lot about Stuxnet. You, 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 of course, immediately said, no, it's governmental. Just not clear which government. Uh, and I think the attack proved what I was saying in the book, which came up before the attack was known, which is you can cause real devices, real hardware in the world, and real space, not cyberspace, to blow up. He's talking about uh, cyber warfare. He says the war's already begun and we're losing. <laughs> China, China has basically hacked every single major company in the U.S., says Richard Clark. And a few, I- a few small podcast cl- networks. I guess my, you know, when when we hear that, I, you know, it's easy to think, oh my God, unplug everything. But the fact is, you know, you're getting far more benefit from your your website than right. It costs, you. and you're not, st- and you know, nobody's getting credit card numbers by hacking our website. They're not getting anything, you know. Right. They're they're getting our website. They're getting us. But they're not getting any credit card numbers or anything. I'm contributing to FUDs, says Hogan. I'm just quoting Richard Clark, who seems like he has some has a dog in this hunt. <clears throat> but I don't know. See, I can't say anything. I'm just going to shut up. Question five. G. Svidin in Southern California raises a good point about Spidey. Or Speedy. I call it Spidey because I'm a Spider-Man fan. <laughs> With respect to Speedy, I'm surprised to hear your surprised to hear your excitement about the server push mechanism. Seems to me a server can push content without a request will waste bandwidth on unwanted content. For example, if no script is installed and functioning, why should I download the huge JavaScript framework libraries on many sites now? Another example is turning off images when mobile browsing. With such bandwidth caps and costs, I wouldn't want to download content I don't want. I understand, and this actually is an interesting question. I, I kind of, yeah. I it came up, it came to me too. I understand why there's a scaled down version of server push, which hints to the client that what they should be asking for next, but that appears to hinder the speeding up of the bandwidth, as the client would still have individual requests. I would think the parallelization of requests and content returns would have a better payoff. Let the browser request all it wants 
after filters like no script or image block and fill the bandwidth with only desired content. All in all, speedy sounds good, but from the little I've heard and read, it seems focused on delivering all content, a business perspective, rather than just desired content, a user perspective. I'd love to see a more middle-of-the-road perspective. I hypothesize adoption would be much faster on both sides. Thanks, Jesus. What, what do you think? Is it is it anti-user and pro-business? Well, it certainly changes the model from a client-side request to one which which does offer some server push. Now, in fairness, the server push side is regarded as an advanced feature. It isn't part of the base speedy spec. Both of those things, the server hints and the server push, or are, are sort of more on the experimental fringe. It's like, well, this is in the spec. We, we didn't want to, like, not design it in so that we wish we had it later because maybe it would be a good thing. My sense is it isn't something which is being actively used and deployed at this point, probably for much the same reason. And I really do, I mean, I, as a proponent of only getting what we ask for and of things like NoScript, um, he's, he's right. You know, some of these, these scripting libraries are just big blobs, which someone gives you the URL to it and, you know, your browser's going to suck it down and take all the time to do that, which is crazy if you've got scripting turned off. So, um, no, I think his point is well taken for what it's worth it's my sense is it isn't happening now um and i would argue that the business perspective is giving the user the most responsive page possible and that the, you could for, for example you know give them images well of course here he's saying he wants to be able to turn images off so so that, <laughs> that's a problem anyway so i, I guess it's certainly a trade-off um, and and I thought he raised a good point, yeah, which is yeah. why I wanted to include it. Brian M. in Edmonton, Canada, wonders about Speedy and CDNs. I've been uh, catching up on the discussion about Speedy. I saw a major problem. Many websites, my own included, use content distribution networks, CDNs, that serve static assets, images, JavaScripts, etc., from geographically distributed servers. Many CDNs use Anycast topic you discussed a few weeks ago was speedy wouldn't all of my assets need to be pumped through the same servers that handle my main dynamic content that could be catastrophic for many sites it would slow down my app servers it'd be more expensive because the price to serve static assets from app servers is quite a bit more costly for a few different reasons processing bandwidth etc or am i missing something thanks for the great podcast brian um okay so what he's assuming is that that this we 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 talked about the notion of of a single connection being made between the browser and the server and sort of had to get over the idea that that could be faster than multiple separate connections and as long as we've got a single connection highly used a fully utilized single connection which is what Speedy for the first time allows because we can overlap things, that single connection can be overall much more efficient than making separate connections. But that absolutely doesn't keep you 
from establishing additional speedy connections to entirely different domains. So the idea would be you'd have one connection per domain or per, per, per server from the browser out to that remote asset and a different connection to the CDN. So, so you're still going to get the benefit of speedy. In fact, the CDN might not support speedy. So, so the browser would, would seamlessly use a non-speedy connection to the CDN, yet a speedy connection to, to the server in order to pull all of those assets from one place. So, so there, there definitely is no assumption or presumption on, on the part of speedy that, that it will only be making a single connection to a remote location. It'll make a single connection per server and... But, you know, if, you, if you're pulling content from 36 different places, it'll set up 36 connections, and those that are speedy can run faster than they would otherwise. So no so problem. Compat yeah. Compatible with all of that. Yeah. yeah. John in Kentucky wonders about the future readability of computer media. Oh, don't we all? Oh. Anybody with a zip drive knows. <laughs> or zip disk, I should say. <laughs> if you got the drive, you're okay. Uh, Mr. Gibson. Sir. My father's church is getting ready to celebrate its 100th anniversary pretty soon. They plan on opening the time capsule under the cornerstone. That's neat. And adding a CD with photos on it. Hasn't been opened since the 60s. I was thinking about this. What would be better for them to use, figuring the technology still exists to read them? A CD, DVD, or a thumb drive? <laughs> Thanks for your time, John. You know, this is a great question. It is. Because, for example, um, I have around here some MFM hard drives with data on them, yet no MFM controllers. You know, or if they have M if I have an MFM controller, it's got an ISA, the original bus from the PC, and I have you know no motherboards with ISA buses anymore. It it is a a really good point that you know we think in terms of of the technology we have and are using but this whole issue of will we be able to read it in the future not just will the the medium itself hold up its integrity i mean that's a question will the writable cd be readable even if you had the the technology you know, I mean, well, if if I had an eight-track tape from, you know, back in the day, I don't have any eight-track tape players. Of course, vinyl has come back into vogue, so so there's an exception to the problem of, of needing a turntable to play the, the discs that, you know, you and I were listening to in college, Leo. Well, you know but, what you should do. You should print prints, because those will exactly, be good. That's exactly right. <laughs> or And better yet, put it on papyrus. It's the only thing we know last thousands of years. Put it, put it on acid-free yeah, paper. Yeah. Put it on acid-free paper exactly. so it will not yellow. All of my deck manuals from the early 1970s they're, they're are just yeah. incredibly yellow yeah. because they were not on acid-free paper. I printed all of the Passion for Technology books that I published on, on art-grade acid-free paper. Not that I particularly thought they'd be in any time capsules, for any reason, but I just thought, well, you know, I want them to look the same way a hundred years from now. But you know, music, if you're talking about music, a, a vinyl record 
is going to be very simple to reverse engineer because you can look at it and you say, oh, I see, these are waveforms. I just need something to read these waveforms. Maybe it's possible a CD will be so easy to reverse engineer. Certainly there will have been a lot of CDs around, and presumably any future archaeologists 100 years from now will certainly know how to read CDs. Hard drives yeah, a little know, more a little more opaque, if you ask me. Yeah, I was thinking maybe put the CD and a USB CD drive in. That is, you ah, know, a reader. A, put a reader in. Put a reader in. Now the problem, of course, is the the USB interface. We're already that's, moving to that's USB gone. three. Yeah, and so a you know, hundred years from now, we're not going to have you. Well, I don't know when they're going to open this again, but you know, fifty years from now, we're not going to have USB. You. USB, you'll it'll be we'll be on to some you know twilight zone technology. I mean, Intel's already pushing stuff that's like, can it even work? It is so fast. It's like okay, make prints. The human eye has not changed its interface in. Tens of thousands of years. That really is the answer, yeah. is print these things out. Yeah. I mean, instead of doing a CD, print them out. That's that's what you need. But, you know, this is actually a very big topic. And, and uh, what I find fascinating is it is now the province of librarians. Because librarians have become information specialists mm. and archivists. And they are the forefront of this. It's fascinating stuff. I think it's, a, it's something I talk about on the radio show a lot because this is something real people do want to think about and, and really don't know what to do about. Well, especially photos that are right. sort of by definition for the future. Right. But if yeah. the future can't look at them, then you've sort of defeated your purpose. Jared in Western Australia has been wondering about spare sectors. That was not a good Australian accent. <laughs> that came out all wrong. Listening to your discussions on the show about how Spinrite works and how it shows the drives bad sectors and induces the drive to map out weakened sectors before they become terminal is all well and good. But I've never heard you discuss what happens if the drive runs out of spare sectors and cannot map any more bad sectors. Well, you're in trouble if that happens. <laughs> you said... <laughs> you said that sectors are map mapped out as bad at the factory, so when the drive is new, its compatibility or capability to map out additional sectors would already be somewhat compromised. Is there any way for us to know where the drive stands? Can you run out of places to put stuff? Oh, yeah, you can. It's more the uh, drive uh, allocation table, I would guess, than the actual... I mean, the drive, you can find spare sectors. It's the drive, It's right? Well, um, what happens is that drives generally store extra sectors at the end of the track and if you and uh, i've talked about mapping sectors well the way that actually happens is they will move all of the sectors from the bad spot to the end of the track down by one they shift the whole all of that block of data down so that so that so that the drives can continue to read at normal speed. It just sort of reads past the bad sector and finds the one it was looking for that it expected to see in the bad spot. Now it finds it a little bit further down. So they actually they actually just shuffle the balance of the of the track downwards toward the end of the track. Well, there is a limit to how far they can go, and this is the one place that that smart S M A R T this um, uh, uh, what is it? Self-management analysis and reporting technology. S M A R T is the acronym, um, and 
it will show you there are different parameters that SMART has, and one is relocated sectors. And what you don't want is for that to get down to zero because essentially it, it doesn't it, – it, the, the problem with SMART is that manufacturers never wanted to tell us anything about what was going on in, in, inside the drive. They wanted it to, to be a black box with, that we buy and we're happy with. But Compaq, back in the old days, said, no, we, we, we insist. The Compaq was like a major IBM clone manufacturer, for those who don't remember the name. Um, they insisted, and they had enough purchasing power to force drive manufacturers, the big ones at the time, Western Digital and, and Seagate, Micropolis, and, and a, a Mac Store, to force them to give them a, a, a means of asking the drive how it feels. And Compaq actually famously used Spinrite on their dock where they were accepting drives. They would over-order drives and use Spinrite to pre-qualify them before putting them into their machines and would send back the drives that Spinrite said were weaker, less good than, than the majority of the drives. And manufacturers didn't like that they were doing that. So they said, okay, fine. We'll, we'll, and that's where this whole smart system came from. It is a sadly weak specification. It's not something that anyone should be proud of. Manufacturers were compelled to do it or they would lose a major vendor in, in the form of Compaq. And so they added this. The point is that it, just, it doesn't give you a lot of data. It sort of gives you a, a happiness indication. And when that runs to zero, then you're really in trouble. So that's one of the things that Spinrite monitors while it's doing its work, is it's there, there's a screen there that monitors the smart parameters on the fly and also is able to show you the rate at which error correction is occurring, which allows you to get some sense for the relative health of the drive. So they are black boxes. The manufacturers don't want us to see what's really going on. There is no specification for asking a drive, you know, for its bad block tables, for how many spare sectors it has remaining, for which tracks are almost out of spares. They're just, there's no interface like that that is available to the outside world. So we, you know, we do the best we can. And, of course, running Spinrite on the drive from time to time allows the drive to at least know what's going on with it for what good that does. <laughs> Uh, next, we got Bob Lindner in La Crosse, Wisconsin. He found news of Astaro and, brace yourself, stochastic fair queuing. Guys, I thought it worth a mention. I've been playing with the Astaro product, the home ISO download. Good for you. I think this is a really great product. A few weeks ago, I enabled the QoS, quality of service settings. The Astaro Security Gateway, ASG, allows you to enable an upload optimizer and a download equalizer. They are described as follows by Astaro. The download, download equalizer, if enabled, Stochastic Fairness Queuing, SFQ. Uh, this is becoming the acronym uh, winner of the week. And Random Early Detection, RED, queuing algorithms will avoid network congestion. In case the configured downlink speed is reached, packets from the most downlink-consuming stream will be dropped. 
That's the download equalizer. The upload optimizer, if enabled, will automatically prioritize outgoing TCP connection establishments, that is, TCP packets with the SYN flag set, acknowledgement packets of TCP connections, that's the ACK flag set, and the packet length between 40 and 60 bytes, and DNS lookups, UDP packets on port 53. <laughs> I thought you might find this interesting. Thanks for the great podcast, Bob. Talk about well, dumping now, this in your lap. <laughs> so there. <laughs> what is that? Um, what's really interesting, okay, we talked about the first part, the download equalizer that uses um, this stochastic fairness queuing and random early detection. The idea being that as a buffer is filling, it will the router will begin discarding packets statistically more often to prevent the buffer from getting ever getting completely full. And that means that if a particular stream is hogging the bandwidth, the chances are its packets will get dropped, which will send its endpoints the message that they need to back off and slow down. So that's that, that's that this RED, random early detection, is one of the is the most often used um, active queue management. There's another acronym, AQM, which is where, what we're going to be dealing with now for the next decade is smarter queue, active queue management. But the upload optimizer is really interesting. This is a move to the front algorithm. It says if enabled, this option will automatically prioritize outgoing TCP connection establishments that is, TCP packets with a SYN flat, as in synchronize set, acknowledgement packets of TCP connections with the ACK flag set, and short packets, that is, between 40 and 60 bytes, and DNS lookups. So this is neat because it means that, that the little tiny packets, which we need in order to keep our, our connections running, move to the front of the queue. They don't have to wait behind a long delay of, you know, blob that's being uploaded or downloaded. The, the, the Astaro technology gets them out right away. They don't, that, that doesn't delay the blob because these are necessarily very small packets. They're going to they're, they're be 40 bytes rather than 1,500 bytes. So in terms of the, the, the packet delivery time, there isn't much cost, but they do allow the system to act as if there is no bloat in the buffer. So bravo, Astaro. They, uh, they clearly gave this some thought um, like before the rest of the industry. Wow, had. that's pretty smart. Yeah. Amazing. Our last question, Mr. G, from Kyle D. in B.C., he w- <laughs> How did I do that? He wonders about private email. Steve, I have a question about private email. I currently store way too much information on Google, and I'm trying to move some services away. Do you know of any good email services with a better privacy policy than Gmail, Hotmail, or Yahoo? I normally use PGP for anything sensitive. I would like just like slightly better terms of service privacy police when dealing with email. Thanks. Great show, Kyle D. So that's really one for you, Leo. I have my own servers at GRC, so I've never needed to to think about the repository. But for people who, like with Gmail, have all of their mail living somewhere, Kyle is becoming a little nervous about that. And so I thought I wondered if you had any suggestions for 
probably smaller solutions um, who maybe are a little more honorable. Uh, I do. But I would say, uh, uh, first and foremost, that uh, any service that you're going to use uh, is, you know, you're trusting them. <laughs> and uh, maybe, you've, maybe we've all lost trust in Google, Yahoo, and AOL. Uh, maybe not. Um, but most services have similar access to your content. And if they provide anti-spam services, are doing similar scanning of the content. So, I mean, that's just the nature of anti-spam. They're looking at keywords in the same way that Google does. Google does it for both anti-spam and for advertising. So maybe you don't like that. Um, since he uses PGP, I'm going to recommend a Canadian company called Hushmail, uh, mm. which is an encrypted service. Now, I should point out that Hushmail, if presented with a, like anybody, I think, presented with a governmental subpoena from law enforcement, will disclose. Uh, so... Uh, the reason they can do that is because I guess they have the key. Anyway, I do think Hushmail was created with exactly this point of view. They have a privacy policy. They do not do spam filtering because they don't they don't look at your mail. Um, they talk about in their privacy policy uh, web logs and cookies. They do log IP addresses. Cookies are not used for marketing purposes. However, can be used to track your settings. It is not possible for users to view and update their personal information, but this feature will be available in the near future. Uh, Hush must be able to authenticate the user, and they do that. They require a securely sent Hushmail message, but that's the only information they have, basically. Um, the, you know, pretty much you're, this is a good sol solution, and it is encrypted uh, using PGP. Phil Zimmerman worked with them. Um, uh, another solution that you might want to look into, uh, I think I'm moving my email to them, is a, uh, a U.S.-based company called Island Email. Um, uh, they, I know about them because they support MailRoute, and so they have very good anti-spam filtering, but that means that MailRoute is scanning your email. Uh, you know, your Internet service provider is probably similar to one of these services in the sense that they also may do some scanning of your mailbox. Mm -hmm. Unless you ho host your own email server, I think that's the only way to for sure know that only you control that content. Finally, I'll tell you what I am currently using for my IMAP. They were re recently purchased by Opera. So that may be a non-starter. It's called FastMail. Uh, I like FastMail a lot because um, they are, I think, the most sophisticated IMAP server out there. Uh, and Opera has not changed them in any way. In fact, the only thing Opera has done, as far as I can tell, is give them more resources. Mm. But uh, So if you're looking for hosted email, understand that hosted email is always going to have some of this problem. I guess Hushmail is probably the best choice in, in hosted email because uh, of PGP encryption built in. And they have a very aggressive privacy policy. They and they've been around for a long time, and I know that a lot of people trust them. So, I, yeah, yeah I, I think Hushmail is a great, a great thought, Leo. Yeah. Uh, they, they uh, in some countries, government-sponsored projects have been set up to collect. This is on Hushmails. They have a good article, How Hushmail Can Protect You. Um, but, but there was a recent news story. You should probably list, read it. Hushmail does not put, that says Hushmail does give up some information. Hushmail does not put you above the law. We're committed to the privacy of our users and will absolutely not release user data without an order that's legally enforceable under the laws of British Columbia, Canada, which is the jurisdiction of our servers. However, if we do receive an order, we're required to do everything in our power to comply with the law. I think what they're saying here is 
well, this is the next one. I thought data was always encrypted. When one Hushmail user sends an email to another Hushmail user, the body and attachments of that email are kept in our server in encrypted form, and under normal circumstances, we would have no access to that data. We cannot pick an arbitrary encrypted email message off the server and read it. However, since Hushmail is a web-based service, the software that performs the encryption either resides on or is delivered by our servers. That means there is no guarantee that we will not be compelled under an order enforceable under the laws of British Columbia, Canada, to treat a user named in order, an order differently and compromise that user's privacy. What they're saying is we could be forced to compromise our own encryption software so that law enforcement could read your email. But I don't think you could do it after the fact. I would suspect that that would mean in an ongoing conversation. But anyway, read it. <laughs> and, you know, the other thing to do, which is not a bad idea, is to use uh, PGP encryption on yes. your email. And I do that. If you, if you use your own encryption and then you're just transferring a blob from one place to the other, so that you're, you're, you're doing end-to-end encryption, or as we have called it before, pre-internet encryption, where you take responsibility for encrypting, then nobody can read it. Right. Unless the law enforcement comes to your house and then says, give us the keys. And then now, you know, the courts are going back and forth on this one. Uh, The most recent court decision says they can demand keys if they have other evidence that there is illegal activity going on. They can't do it as a fishing expedition. So... There you go. I think Hushmail is probably the best choice in all of that. Yeah, but it's web-based. It's a great idea. And he want, but he did want web-based. Steve, we're out of uh, time, but you know what? It's perfect. In 30 seconds, we'll begin uh, This Week in Google. <laughs> Yay. You couldn't have done it better. Nice podcast. Lots of coverage of all kinds of interesting things. So I think we did a good one. I have no idea what's in store for next week, but I, I can promise something interesting. That's good. Tune in every Wednesday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 1800 UTC. You can watch us live, but if you miss it, we have audio and video available. Uh, video available from us exclusively at twit.tv. Audio, we have a variety of formats, but Steve's the one with the low bandwidth one, the 16 kilobit version, and you can get that directly from grc.com. That's where Spinrite lives, all his free stuff. And I have even lower bandwidth versions in print. Yes. You don't <laughs> get to hear our voice, but you can see every single word we speak, thanks to Steve and Elaine at uh, grc.com. If you want to ask a question, grc.com slash feedback is the place. And if you want Spinrite, the world's best hard drive maintenance utility, absolutely GRC is the place to go and get that. Steve, uh, thanks so much. We'll see you next week. Thanks, Leo. Security.